This week on Obsessed with Investing, we'll look at Amazon's latest efforts to expand, as well as the battle for e-commerce dominance around the world. I'll explain my favorite stock picks in online retail and why Amazon is such a hard company for me to love. Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of Obsessed with Investing. This is a new podcast where I analyze the latest news and investing trends to help you make better financial decisions and successfully navigate the stock market. We'll discuss individual companies and sector trends, political and economic news, and do deep dives into topics like building a dividend growth portfolio, how to find great emerging market stocks, and how to prepare for the next market crash. First off, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Value Prof. I write on SeekingAlpha.com, so you can read my work there if you register with an email address. I'm originally from the Midwest, from Wisconsin, and I went to school at Columbia University in New York. I lived in New York for about 10 years, and now I'm in LA. Um, I've worked as a talent manager, um, singer, songwriter, recording studio owner, and I'm a former investment advisor as well. So I come to this mainly as a very passionate individual investor who obsessively researches and writes about stocks. And there are a lot of great podcasts out there. So I wanted to do something different. I don't want to give you just a you know look at individual stocks. I don't want to give you just a political podcast, but I think it'll be fun to mix everything together. So just a quick caveat before we start the first episode, this is not going to be a politically neutral podcast. My goal is not to make it overtly political, but I do believe that you can't separate politics from investing. Your own political views are going to affect how you view the world economy shaking out, the chances for things like tax reform or healthcare reform passing. And um, all of those things are really going to dictate your own investing decisions. So I want to go through the news each week that we do this. And uh, my own perspective, as you'll quickly realize, is not so much liberal or conservative, but I'm very progressive. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. And I'm very skeptical of what goes on in Washington and of politics in general. So you'll get a lot of contrarian views from me and hopefully a younger millennial perspective. I suppose for some of you, that's an older millennial perspective. But um, I don't want to take things too seriously here. And I certainly don't want to judge anyone for their own political beliefs. Um, I hope to have listeners across the spectrum. And always, please feel free to email me at obsessedwithinvestingpodcast at gmail.com or valueprofinvesting at gmail.com with any feedback you have and any ideas you have for future topics you'd like me to cover, whether it be individual stocks or an investing question you have. And uh, we'll see if we can tackle it here on the show. So without further ado, let's get into our first segment, News Rant. This is News Rant for the week of October 16th, 2017. First item this week that we're going to talk about is tax reform. Just today, uh, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump announced that it might take longer than expected, which is not a surprise for me or for anyone who's really been following the GOP Congress um, over the past year. But they said it could bleed into next year, the efforts, although they're going to try to still pass it this year. Now, this 
tax reform proposal is still just in its infancy, really. It's a proposal that the White House outlined, but that hasn't really been flushed out in Congress into an actual bill yet. So we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. They have floated three to four tax brackets instead of the current seven, raising the lowest rate and lowering the top rate. So the GOP has a lot of deficit hawks that don't want to add to the federal deficit. And this plan, of course, would add something in the realm of $2 trillion to it. There could be pushback from the GOP itself. So far, there has been pushback from GOP Congress people from blue states that have high state and local taxes because one of the proposed changes to the tax code is that state and local deductions would be eliminated, meaning that people in blue states would effectively pay more in taxes if they were taking those deductions. So that's something that might get axed. Uh, We don't know yet, but either way, it looks like it's definitely going to delay this bill getting through. So uh, the president seems to have been reaching out to the holdouts from the health care bill. Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham both golfing with him this week. Rand Paul, after golfing with President Trump, seemed to be supportive of the tax reform effort. But in the past, he has kind of wavered on things and then gone against it at the end of the day. So we'll see where he ends up falling on this. But clearly, Trump is trying to kill two birds with one stone and get tough senators on board for tax reform and maybe win them over to go back to repealing and replacing Obamacare. If it does pass, as investors, you know, we think that this is going to benefit the U.S. stock market. You know, basically, it's going to immediately increase earnings for companies by lowering their taxes a lot. <laughs> so, you know, they're they're aiming for a 20% corporate rate from the current 35%. So, obviously, that's a huge cut. However, the effective tax rate that corporations are paying tends to be closer to about 20%. So it's it's tough to know exactly how much their effective tax rate is going to fall. But long story short, we can assume that earnings are going to get an immediate boost if tax reform goes through. Some of that, you know, the argument is, is that already priced into the market? The market is so high right now. If the tax reform bill does not go through and we see kind of a healthcare reform debacle like we've seen, you know, and it fails, is the market going to tank? I kind of fall in the middle on this. Some analysis sites that, you know, I really respect like Morningstar have priced in corporate tax reform to an extent. A lot of the time they'll include like a 25% corporate rate in their fair value estimates of stocks. I don't like that Morningstar is doing that. I think you should wait and and see, especially with this Congress, what gets passed before you're baking that into your numbers. So, you know, I think we'll see a drop. Earnings are pretty strong right now in general, so I don't see it as creating a severe correction or anything if tax reform doesn't go through. But we'll see if they get it together to pass or if these GOP deficit hawks, a lot of them from the Tea Party end of the caucus, will stand up and block it. Or, uh, you know, possibly the public, when they learn more about how much it actually benefits the rich over the poor (laughs) and even the middle class, really, um, a lot of middle class and upper middle class households will have a tax increase under this proposal, whereas there's a massive tax cut for the wealthy and for corporations, obviously. There could be a lot of public pressure on the GOP to kill the bill after they learn more about it, uh, which is somewhat what happened with the healthcare legislation as well. So I think that to me is a pretty big possibility uh, as we learn more about this. You know, the GOP has delayed a lot of the Congressional Budget Office's uh, reviews of these things. But for now, um, 
although it's in the news, it doesn't look like tax reform is happening, at least for another two, three months at the soonest. The Iran deal is the second thing up today. Trump decertified the Iran deal this week, and yet Nikki Haley and the certainly Congress has said that the U.S. will remain in the deal despite decertifying it. The decertification process is not actually in the deal. It's actually just part of the bill that Congress passed reviewing the deal. So it doesn't pull the U.S. out of anything yet. And we are still in the, in the Iran nuclear deal, which I believe is in our best interest. And um, certainly much of Congress does at this point, because it does prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon indefinitely. That is not a sunset clause in the deal, although other things are in terms of uh, centrifuges and the types of energy they pursue. But I don't see this having a big effect on the market. It could have had Congress's reaction been different. Obviously, Iran, uh, major oil exporters, so that could have impacted oil prices and energy companies. And uh, certainly any U.S. businesses like Boeing that are planning to do a lot of business with with Iran um, if we were to return to sanctions on those businesses. But for now, it looks like everything with that is going to be fine. And this is just a kind of blustery political rhetoric. Next thing in the news, uh, Trump's executive order on health care. Uh, the White House announced on Thursday evening that the administration would cease CSRs, that's cost-sharing reduction payments, subsidies to insurance companies that sell Obamacare plans. The federal government subsidizes these plans in a couple ways. One way is to pay insurers directly to lower the cost on behalf of consumers. So that's what they're proposing stopping. They also pay individuals directly to subsidize their plans. So the irony of this is that although it looks like you would save money by not paying insurers, it actually increases the money that the federal government would have to pay by an estimated $200 billion um, because those premiums are going to skyrocket without the government subsidies. And then the government will be on the hook to subsidize a similar percentage of those higher premiums as they did before for the individuals, you know, leading to higher payments to cover fewer people <laughs> uh, because obviously some people are going to be priced out as those premiums rise. Those numbers are from the CBO, uh, which estimated that the ACA premiums would rise 20% if those CSR payments end and uh, would cost the federal government an extra $200 billion in subsidies to low-income individuals primarily. So anyways, not a great plan if you asked me. Uh, it seems like a lose-lose-lose all the way around. Insurance company stocks took a big hit this week, still up in the air as to whether stopping those subsidies would even be legal. So this will probably be another court battle and whether or not it'll happen or for how long is kind of up in the air. As investors, it's kind of hard to know how to take these executive orders just because how legally binding they are is up in the air a lot. Obama implemented a lot of executive orders as part of the Affordable Care Act when Congress was uh, kind of stalling on certain things. So typically, whatever Obama did by executive order, Trump can undo by executive order. But because this involves plans that are sold in different states and state subsidies, you know, the, the states are going to be involved in this. And a number of states are already challenging this in court. Anyways, uh, you know, health insurance stocks have generally done incredibly well under Obamacare, despite some of them pulling out and saying that these markets are unsustainable. 
uh, we haven't really seen a major correction in them yet. So it'll be interesting to see if they can weather this storm or if this materially affects their profits. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are, are trying to tie these uh, CSR subsidies to the budget negotiations that are going on, kind of threatening a government shutdown if they are stopped. We'll see that probably won't come into play until December. So that's another risk out there for the market, but not not too bad yet. Next thing in the news is our uh, favorite country, North Korea. A lot of developments out of there uh, this week. Some military exercises began today, Monday, between the U.S. and South Korea, displaying strength in front of North Korea. These are a regular occurrence, but they always royal North Korea. And uh, North Korea issued a threat to Australia this week for their support of these U.S.-South Korea war games. Australia, of course, not intimidated, but we certainly might see some more missile testing. Uh, North Korea today just said that they're not going to be open to negotiate diplomatically with uh, for diplomatic talks with the U.S. until they have an ICBM capable of delivering a nuclear warhead to the east coast of the U.S., so apparently now they can reach somewhere between the mid-Pacific and the West Coast, but they want to get a bomb all the way to the East Coast as a deterrent, and then they will be open to negotiations. So to me, this is just a, a big market risk, certainly not comforting to see the developments from Donald Trump saying that there is basically only one way to handle this threat, telling Rex Tillerson that his attempts at uh, back-channel negotiations or direct-channel negotiations are useless. And obviously, there's a big feud past week between Bob Corker, GOP senator, and Donald Trump. Basically, Corker saying that Trump is uh, castrating Tillerson in public, trying to basically render Tillerson's efforts ineffective so that Trump can just warmonger and Along those lines, a new Quinnipiac poll has showed that 46% of Republicans now support a preemptive strike against North Korea. So obviously that is a super disturbing development. Keep in mind, Republicans are not 50% of this country. They're probably closer to, you know, 30% or so. It's not 40% of American citizens. It's, you know, maybe 46% of 30%. So maybe we're looking at like 15% of the country. But it's still very discouraging, uh, considering that a lot of what Trump does is appeal to his base. So I really don't want to see his base get too pro-war here for fear of pushing anything past where they need to be. I think it seems that North Korea can remain contained if the U.S. restrains its rhetoric, but certainly Trump has not done that and seems to be suggesting that uh, he's looking for war as well. Um, I highly recommend listening to pieces uh, this week on the New York Times Daily podcast. Uh, they had a great piece from Nick Kristof um, about kind of inside North Korea, the changes that he's seeing in terms of them uh, being prepared for war with the U.S. and how that rhetoric is kind of ratcheted up under Trump. Super disturbing, but good to know, uh, especially for your investing decisions. And also a great piece on NPR's Money Matters on uh, kind of how North Korea's capitalist class really grew organically there and how that money from those marketplaces is being funneled into North Korea's defense and weapons programs, kind of explaining how this very poor country is getting all the money to 
develop these nuclear weapons and these very sophisticated missiles and bomb delivery platforms. I, I also think it's great that we learn a little bit more about the country and just understand the real risk to human life in uh, North Korea, of course, but also in South Korea and Japan, Guam. To me, North Korea is a huge risk for the market. And I don't think the market is appropriately pricing that in right now. So um, it's a very dangerous place that we're all in here. Trump continues to say that he prefers a diplomatic solution, but his tweets and some of his other rhetoric off the cuff really does not make that seem like it's the case. So anyways, to be continued on that. The last news item we'll be talking about today is Trump's search for a new Fed chair. So this might be kind of dry for the uh, non-financial types out there, but uh, it, it might have the biggest impact on markets as soon as a decision is made. So it's important to look at it. Trump has been interviewing new Fed chair candidates for the Federal Reserve. There were five people under consideration. I think three of them seem to be under serious consideration. So there's Gary Cohn, who is Trump's head economic advisor, who Trump likes, but then uh, he came out against Trump's Charlottesville comments. So then he was kind of taken off the table as Trump likes to punish those who publicly disagree with him. And Janet Yellen, the current Fed chair, is also in the running, but Trump's kind of suggested and people think that Trump likes to get people loyal to him and new blood in there. So uh, her chances do not look good. The three most likely candidates are Kevin Warsh, who's a former Fed governor, John Taylor, who's a Stanford economist. He formerly worked at the Fed, and he's famous for his uh, Taylor rule that he thinks the government should use to govern future rate changes instead of kind of making them subjectively based on different economic factors. He wants it to follow a very specific formula. And Jerome Powell is the third, who's a current Fed governor. Powell is Steve Mnuchin's favorite pick. He kind of represents continuity from current policies, um, which has basically been easy money, you know, low, very low interest rates and a very gradual increasing of interest rates now that the economy has picked up. John Taylor and Kevin Warsh, Taylor probably to a greater extent, disagree with that approach and think that the rate increases uh, should have happened much faster and that they need to raise them quickly now to better prepare for future recessions. So yeah, and it's interesting because this doesn't really jive with Trump's own stated philosophy about interest rates. I mean, Trump, like many things, he's kind of all over the place on this, where he's uh, both praised low interest rates and said he wants low interest rates to stay low. That you know, he obviously owns businesses that benefit from low interest rates and the ease of financing new loans. But then he's also criticized Janet Yellen and you know says the Fed has too much control over the markets. So tough to know where he really stands on it, but John Taylor would be a big departure from the past policies. So there's a chance that even though Taylor's policies would probably be good, economically speaking, kind of in a defensive sense for the long term, you know, it might roil the markets more than any of these other people. Uh, certainly Kevin Warsh or John Taylor would be seen as having a much bigger negative impact on the stock market than Powell or Yellen, because the market likes very predictable, gradual rate hikes, which is what Yellen has uh, stated is their current policy. 
you know, and then you got Mnuchin kind of lobbying for Powell. So we'll see if Trump decides to go his own way on this and go with someone like Taylor would raise interest rates faster and have a tighter monetary policy so that we could get up to, let's say, a 3% baseline interest rate that could be cut if there was an economic recession. Or uh, if he goes with Powell or Yellen, who kind of continue with the current slow rate hike policy. Taylor would also be not the, the top pick for the big banks like Goldman Sachs, who, you know, Trump obviously has people from Goldman in his cabinet. Mnuchin is uh, a Goldman guy. So will Trump do something that actually hurts the big banks? I doubt it, but we have yet to see. So that in North Korea are probably the things that most immediately will impact the market in the coming weeks. So, uh, yeah, we'll take a look at that again after Trump makes a decision. Now it's time for our second segment of the episode, and uh, these are going to be the stock analysis or market analysis parts of the episode uh, with our main topic. So today our topic is my beef with Amazon. Now, I know Amazon has been a phenomenally performing stock over the years, and their revenue growth is extremely impressive. Overall, it's been a great stock in many ways. I personally have some issues with the company that have prevented me from investing in them. I've invested for short periods of time, but I just have some issues with their business model that both concern me as an investor and kind of put me off as a consumer. So um, yeah, I wanted to go through those and discuss some of the risks of investing with Amazon and some of the things they're doing to counter those risks and where the future might be headed for some of these companies. My first issue with Amazon is that the company might be overextending itself right now instead of focusing on improving its existing services. So we all know Amazon's been all over the news lately. It just bought Whole Foods. Um, the entire year, it's really been causing stocks to tumble left and right in the retail sector. First in big box retail with companies like Target and Nordstrom and JCPenney. Uh, and now in grocery store chains like Kroger and Costco, some of these stocks have really taken a beating and are down, you know, 25, 30, even up to 50% uh, for some of the big box stores. So we know that Amazon is moving in a lot of different directions right now. And at this point, it's unclear as to where they're going to take their grocery ambitions. Obviously, I can see a lot of synergies where they have a lot of data on consumer buying habits, which items are more popular with them, the margins for those items. So just their data operations probably will allow them to pick the right items to discount like they immediately did at Whole Foods where they brought down the price of bananas and avocados and salmon, a bunch of the most common items that people buy. And uh, it's already had a positive effect on store traffic at Whole Foods. So their big data should be a big plus for them as they figure out how to optimize their margins and grow Whole Foods market share in the grocery industry, which right now is actually pretty small, mostly because there aren't many Whole Foods stores relative to like Kroger or Ralph's or some of the other big ones. One of the challenges with Whole Foods had always been that they would really only build them in areas where the average income was very high. 
So possibly by lowering a lot of the price points, Amazon will enable Whole Foods to expand to lower income areas that still would probably be fairly high income areas. But right now they're just in like very high income areas. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Obviously, they're also using Whole Foods stores as sort of delivery warehouses and pickup warehouses for Amazon orders where there's Amazon lockers in the entrances of these Whole Foods now where you can come and pick up your items. They might do things with Amazon Fresh where they're increasing their online grocery orders that they're delivering to your homes. So there are a lot of possible synergies between Amazon and Whole Foods, but it's important to keep in mind that groceries is a pretty low margin business and Amazon itself is a very low margin business. So one of my concerns here is how long will it take Amazon to make this into a profitable acquisition? We know that they didn't pay any cash for this deal, actually. They had cash on hand to cover it. Um, Amazon has about $23 billion in cash as of their last filing. But they decided because of low interest rates and because investors are kind of hungering for this type of security right now, uh, they decided to do a bond offering for $16 billion to fund this sale. And they got a good interest rate on it, which was four and a quarter percent, I believe, for a 40-year bond. The problem with it, though, I think, is that with such a low margin business um, and with Amazon being such a low margin business, it's almost like you're taking away your profits when you're paying interest on this sale uh, for that length of time um, because you don't really have that much room to work with. It's going to be a big boost to Amazon's revenues for sure with Whole Foods, but the profits is another story. So. Amazon's lack of concern with being profitable is a problem here, I think. And it'll be interesting to see if they can expand those Whole Foods margins while lowering those costs, which that's gonna be the tricky thing, is that they're kind of coming in saying, we're gonna be willing to take a lower margin than Whole Foods is, is making on this, but then we're gonna finance it so that we're paying interest on this sale for the next 40 years. It's just an interesting strategy, you know? It's, it's like, I don't always know what Amazon's thinking is aside from we're gonna come in and dominate this industry and this is gonna lead to more Prime subscribers or whatever the goal happens to be. Groceries are the biggest segment of the consumer market, so it makes sense that Amazon wants to increase its foothold in that market and with physical stores, since that's just a very hard segment to completely transition to online. Because so many grocery purchases are things you might need that night, or you know, it's it's an urgent purchase, or it's a kind of family thing on Sundays you go to the store. So I get wanting to have. Uh, a store presence, but we'll see how it plays out and if this turns out to be a wise acquisition for them. The next issue I have with them is uh, Amazon Studios and uh, Prime Video, which I think it's great. I mean, I'm a Prime subscriber. Um, we watch Prime Video. Um, Prime is great for the consumer, for sure. But on a company level, we're beginning to see that this is another area where they might have rushed into something and not really thought through the whole hiring process and building out the right kind of uh, content development team to really make it a powerhouse studio that can compete with the other streaming providers. So Netflix, HBO, Showtime, 
AMC, you know, when you think about TV networks, you think about great content being the driving force. Sometimes it's sports partnerships and stuff like that. Really, the value um, is driven by content and by the shows that people need and the channels that they really want to watch. So clearly, the goal is to create these blockbuster intellectual property shows that the you know studios can own and distribute. Um, you know, one of the biggest risks to a model like Netflix is that all the other studios get together and say, you know what, we don't like Netflix getting all these profits off of our backs, so we're going to pull our content and just do our own streaming services. Some of them, like Disney, have started that process by saying they're not going to license their movies to Netflix after a certain uh, date. But, you know, in response to that kind of existential threat, these companies invest a lot more in their own content so that they, they have these content libraries of their own to fall back on. What I worry about with Amazon Studios and I think what they're worried about now is that they can't seem to find that hit show. They, they've had some shows that were good, but they don't have anything that's on the level of these major series like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad. And it seems like they're taking steps backwards instead of forwards right now. The head of Amazon Studios was just caught in a sexual harassment scandal, and he was immediately fired. Right after the Harvey Weinstein scandal, they had a Weinstein-produced series that was very star-studded, had like Julianne Moore and some other people that uh, that was immediately canceled. And we know that Jeff Bezos is on a tear to find the next Game of Thrones. But I worry as an artist myself and just knowing how these things come together, that this is going to be, entertainment's going to be one of those areas where Amazon probably can't force their way in or buy hit series like that. It really starts on an artistic level with the talent that you're cultivating, with the relationships that that talent has with the studio execs. So I'm not sure if they're really going about this in the right way. Now, the good thing about streaming services like this and uh, TV studios in general are that they're higher margin businesses. You know, you'll, it's common to see margins in the 20, 30 percent range, uh, maybe even a little higher depending on the, the model. And the problem with Amazon is that because Prime Video is really just an add-on to a subscription service that primarily is used to subsidize your delivery service from Amazon orders you place, and maybe in the future even used to give you discounts at Whole Foods or stuff like that, which Amazon has mentioned, it kind of negates that high margin benefit from Prime Video because it's a very expensive business to start off like this, especially with the kind of content race that's happening with these studios. It's common to spend $100 million or more on a series now for TV, uh, for just 10 episodes even. So Amazon could end up paying a significant amount of money to get those type of hit shows. And certainly they've got to pay pretty hefty licensing fees to license movies and TV shows for the service that they don't own. So that's one of my worries with it is that Prime Video is a great service for consumers. Maybe it leads some people to subscribe to Prime, but it might be this kind of downward spiral where their Prime rate that they're charging doesn't allow them enough headroom to continue to invest enough money in this business to make it really as attractive as the other streaming services, which can really just use all their profits and funnel it back into that development. 
So it's going to be interesting to see how Prime Video plays out. If Amazon continues to try and make it into a major film and TV studio and invest the kind of money that's necessary to do that, or if they eventually kind of pare it back and just have enough licensed content and some original stuff to keep people watching and happy with it, even though it's not going to be a major draw for Prime customers. It just strikes me as a very difficult business to run as a pet project that you're not trying to treat as like a profitable enterprise because it's too easy to just pour a lot of money into these projects and not see much for them. So I I think that'll be interesting going forward. Uh, Obviously, people have been discussing that Amazon's going to have to raise Prime subscription rates in the future. And the question is really just how much are they going to be able to do that before they start losing subscribers? I think personally, my family would pay significantly more for a Prime membership to keep it just because of the delivery and everything. But Uh, Amazon Studios, to me, doesn't have a very clear benefit to their profitability as a company and might actually be detracting over time because they're really not building in enough headroom. My next issue with Amazon has to do with their international expansions. Obviously, for investors, this is another thing where it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's it's great to see Amazon making more aggressive moves internationally. Right now, they've pledged $5 billion towards expansion into India. And last week, uh, they just announced that they're going to increase their presence in Brazil, where until now, they've been in Brazil for a, a while, but they've really only been selling books and limited other products. So now they're going to expand into electronics and some other things. They've kind of issued some warnings to temper expectations that they don't have a ton of resources to put into these things right now, but that they're building for the future there. So naturally, in South America, this sent the major online retailer there, Mercado Libre, tumbling. It's actually a one of my main holdings. Um, I'm a big fan of Mercado Libre's model. They're basically like an Alibaba type model where they're resell for third parties. So it's kind of like eBay without a bidding process where merchants will uh, list their stuff and Mercado Libre will facilitate the delivery and the payment. They have Mercado Pago, which is a payment platform of theirs, um, similar to Alipay. So right now, Mercado Libre is the biggest online retailer in Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, one of the biggest in Mexico. And just the specter of Amazon increasing its business there has caused that stock to tumble. I'm certainly waiting for it to come back up. Uh, I wouldn't recommend selling. But uh, South America, traditionally not an easy market to penetrate. Uh, The culture is definitely very different than in the U.S., logistically much more difficult to get around uh, the kind of mountainous hilly regions there some of the roads are not as developed as here so Mercado Libre has put a lot into their delivery services and certainly has a big edge right now over Amazon so it's going to be interesting to see how quickly and if Amazon can really penetrate and become a leader in that market certainly Amazon has been doing pretty good in India In China, it did not do so well. It really struggled against uh, JD and Alibaba and, of course, the Chinese government, which, you know, everyone there has to contend with. And it basically gave up. You know, Amazon really only could get a one to two percent market share and kind of stopped putting effort into expanding into China. 
because those uh, Alibaba and JD are very entrenched and uh, very close with the government and, you know, just became too expensive of an endeavor to pursue. So again, it just goes back to my overarching issue of is Amazon overextending itself right now instead of focusing on making core services in the US and Europe better, you know, Amazon uh, Prime Video, just their delivery service in general, very anecdotal example, but just this last week I had two Amazon orders just not arrive, which was obviously very surprising. And to me, it just seems like as they try and create their own delivery network and distance themselves from UPS and some of the traditional freighters to just do everything themselves, is their service slipping? Do people start to leave Prime and head towards Walmart or some of the other companies that are trying to beef up their retail presence and their delivery speed? Um, So I think that's a big risk for Amazon going forward. My second point under my beef with Amazon is that their private label efforts might start to erode consumer trust and increase their legal risks. Um, Similar to how Alphabet Uh, just got hit with that big EU fine for prioritizing their own shopping service in results. You know, I think not being upfront with consumers that you are the producer of a product um, or the owner of a brand and then prioritizing those brands in your search results could effectively be the same thing um, in that you're disadvantaging all of the other sellers on your site. You know, it might be a little different for Amazon since they are primarily an online retailer, but there have been some articles coming out. There's one in uh, Quartz that I'd recommend checking out called Amazon Owns a Whole Collection of Secret Brands that lists a lot of their in-house brands and brands that they own that aren't always advertised as such to consumers buying them. So that's one thing they're doing that could potentially uh, start to rub consumers the wrong way and just rub brands the wrong way, third-party brands that want to sell on Amazon, but if they start to realize that Amazon's just throwing all of these other Amazon-produced items in their feed, you know, might have some of these third-party sellers rethink their relationship with Amazon. You know, if I'm Nike and I'm trying to sell uh, shoes and shirts and then all of a sudden there's a very similar looking shirt or pair of shoes that's put up on Amazon before my uh, shoes that uh, is actually being produced by Amazon because they know that people like a certain model of clothing or a certain thing, uh, then that's what Amazon start decides to get into. You know, you're looking at some anti-competition um, legal issues that I think could increase the risk to the stock price. They're doing a similar thing in publishing, actually, which is super interesting considering that Amazon started as a bookseller. They are now doing in-house publishing and they've got a couple uh, brands that also are very hard to determine whether they're owned by Amazon or not. But uh, they actually have their own publishing and printing operation where they make print to order books at their distribution centers. Uh, and then they ship them to you directly. So you can see why this would save a ton of money. I mean, it's a brilliant business idea. Uh, instead of you know doing a run of a million copies of books and just having them sit in inventory, uh, they can just print books to order. I mean, if you order Pride and Prejudice, Amazon can just print it immediately with one of their uh, print-to-order book printing centers at a warehouse and just ship it to you. Uh, the problem comes with other book publishers or book publishers that own, uh, you know, rights to these books, eventually understanding that this was what Amazon is doing, 
and possibly pulling their books from Amazon's store or pulling the rights or just creating another legal issue by saying, listen, you're prioritizing your own services over ours and we're not getting a fair shot to uh, compete here because the first like few books that pop up or the first one will just be an Amazon edition. Uh, whether or not Amazon tells you, uh, sometimes you can open it up and see that it was printed by Amazon or printed by their um, publishing company. To me, it's just another one of those things that's just a very aggressive kind of move against book publishers and could provoke a lot of backlash. I don't think too many other consumers are going to be concerned about the uh, edition number of their books or, you know, something that a professor would, but just somewhat shady of a business practice to me that it's not done upfront and just like Amazon books or whatever, but that they've got this kind of a uh, network of like printing centers and publishers that aren't upfront listed as Amazon. Um, it begs the question, is Amazon's end goal to eliminate all other third-party sellers on their platform or, you know, what kind of relationship do they want with other companies, right? If other companies just time and time again start realizing that Amazon is just using all of the data it's collecting from them selling on Amazon's site to then undercut them by producing their own in-house products and brands, you know, to take the top selling books or whatever and uh, print those in-house at Amazon distribution centers under their own labels. With all that data should come a lot of responsibility towards these other brands to, you know, not use it for their own competitive advantage. Um, so I think there's a lot of legal questions that come up and just ethical questions about, you know, capitalism and competition that are going to come up with Amazon that we haven't even really scratched the surface yet. And part of that is because a lot of this is being done in secret. Maybe Amazon would will reply to a news outlet like Quartz in their PR department, but they're certainly not listing these things on their website to customers a lot of the time. And, you know, just thinking years down the road, I just wonder if third parties are going to start pulling out of Amazon because Amazon is using their data to compete with them instead of to enable them to sell more items on the site. I think that could be a big issue for them down the road. So that's going to wrap up my discussion of Amazon today. I want to thank you guys so much for tuning into our first episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at obsessedwithinvestingpodcast at gmail.com or valueprofinvesting at gmail.com. That concludes today's episode of Obsessed with Investing. If you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, and rate us on iTunes. Those iTunes ratings really help us climb the charts and reach a larger audience. Thank you so much for tuning in once again, and I can't wait to see you all back here next week, where we'll be taking a look at some of my favorite tech, retail, and banking stocks in one of the hottest markets in the world, China. See you next time.